we're back with another episode of In the Corner. Joining us today is Joey Quinones, a two-times Bengal Bouts captain who just can't help but pile up the Notre Dame degrees. Joey completed his undergrad in 2018, got a master's in education through the ACE program in 2020, and will finish with another degree through Notre Dame's esteem program in 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Joey. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Joey is also currently serving as an assistant rector in Bomber Hall. What's it like being back on campus? It's definitely different, but I also think I'm a different person than two years ago. So <laughs> if I can say one thing, like community has persisted. All the guys are great friends with each other. So COVID hasn't really changed that at all. That is good to hear. And yeah, certainly you had that experience of being an RA in Keogh and then getting to, to now have this AR role. Certainly different circumstances than when than when you left in 2018. So I'd love to jump in and to kick things off, I'd love to return to a theme that's emerged in a couple of previous podcast episodes with guests. And it's this perception by younger boxers that captains have everything figured out. When in reality, captains often have to battle with and overcome self-doubt as they're leading the club. Was that the case for you? And was there a moment that stands out to you when you found yourself really wrestling with it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when I first was told I was going to be a captain, I did not feel like one, that I was ready for it and two, that I deserved it. So this was after my sophomore year. Uh, I made it to the semifinals, uh, lost to Ryan Chestnut. And then for some reason, they named me a captain, at least reasons unknown to me. During the end of the year gathering that we had, that's when they told me. Apparently, people knew beforehand. And <laughs> uh, I there was a rumor kind of going around, but I didn't really believe it. So going into the following year, I was like, got to make sure that they made the correct decision. You demonstrated a lot of potential as a freshman winning your first fight and then showing a ton of toughness in the quarters going three rounds with Gary McOsker. I'm guessing you might still be able to feel some of those body shots. I think you absorbed more than your fair share in that bout. And so sophomore year, you make it to the semifinals and lose a competitive bout that, that was, it was close. Um, junior year, you improved a ton and it felt like this was going to be your year Instead, though, by your own admission, it was not your best performance in, in the semifinals. Looking back on it, what do you remember about that feeling of coming up short, and how did it affect you for the following year? And when I say coming up short, too, I should specify, coming up short of your own expectations. Yeah, I, I think it very much felt just like I let everyone down. I don't think that's uncommon among boxers in the club. Just like knowing how many people came out to support me uh, throughout the year, uh, and throughout the three years in general, and how many of the women's boxers were very supportive of me throughout their season and my season. Yeah, I mean, immediately wasn't, didn't feel great, but just kind of using it to fuel the following year, I guess. That was the first bout that I was participating in, but then I had three others that I was cornering for, and all three lost. So it was like, as much as I'd like to think that it was all about me that day, it was very much like kind of a team loss uh, or quite a bit of it. It was really, really close bout between all three, honestly, like between 
Danny and Jack and Aaron and Montana and Cam and Jack Ryan. Yeah, kind of crummy day, but <laughs> but we persist. Yeah, well, I know coming out of that year, as we recently talked about, Pints with Pals was created. Could you talk a little bit about that uh, for those who don't know about your love of ice cream and this this tradition that formed? Yeah, if anything, that's a testament to how good things can happen in <laughs> not so good situations. So after my semifinals loss uh, to Greg Arts my junior year, a ton of people, well, they know that I love ice cream and they bought pints for me from the huddle or wherever if they lived off campus. I had to borrow the assistant director's freezer to store all of it because we didn't have a good enough freezer. Uh, didn't get cold enough. But I had about like five to six pints of ice cream in there. And then about a week later, I uh, started eating the ice cream because my rule is don't eat ice cream when you're sad. So after that time, yeah, I started putting it on Snapchat. People saw how much, like the ungodly amount of ice cream that I was eating. Then one of my resident assistants of that year asked if he could eat a pint of ice cream with me. And that was pint number nine. And that's when Pints with Pals started. And I'm currently on pint number 173, I want to say, with well over like 70 different people that I've shared a pint of ice cream with. I was fortunate enough to be one of those people in the summer of 2018, I think when you brought one over to Eddie Street Commons and we got to, to share a pint of Ben and was it Ben and Jerry's maybe? No, it was the seven 11 select salted caramel truffle. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Number one fifty three. If you're wondering. <laughs> uh, glad that I, that my uh, pints with pals are they episode or were they like, how, how do you refer to the, the meetings sessions what pint number pint number okay i don't i didn't know what the nomenclature was for pints with pals um and so i i don't mean for this next question to sound cryptic or anything or, or make it into anything more than it was but we had a very direct conversation in the pit one night about halfway through the tournament your senior year that is still very fresh in my mind just as i have my perception of that conversation i'm sure you do as well What's your recollection of that discussion? So I think it was before the semifinals bout, and it was about how I should divide my time between uh, people that I'm cornering and kind of my own work uh, because I was in the tournament still as well. At the time, I remembered it seemed like an either or kind of decision where I can either devote my time to Danny, who's still in it, uh, working with Dan Wilborn, or I can work on myself. I don't know, didn't really want that either or. <laughs> I really wanted the both in that. But coming out of it, it was, if anything, kind of, I would say it was galvanizing a little bit in, or just you need to buckle down. You need to stay disciplined. Like, if you want both, make sure you get both. Yeah, I mean, you're, you, uh, no secret, you're one of my favorite boxers who I've gotten to work with. But I remember being mad at just how unselfish you were being with your time and for you to have invested so much time into the program and to the for the thought of oh like you might not come away with a championship because you chose to spend your time investing it in other people i was like gosh like stop <laughs> stop being so selfless prioritize yourself for once and uh and i and, and recognize like one of the reasons why I've 
uh, always enjoyed working with you and uh, just enjoy your company as a person is because you've got a good heart and a heart for others. But I was just like, gosh, man, like you need to, you need to prioritize yourself. Otherwise we're going to be having the, the conversation about, oh, what if, and I don't want to have that conversation anymore. Well, I feel like conversely, I, I wouldn't want to have the what if for people that I'm cornering for. <laughs> So. I wasn't cornering for them. I didn't care. No, that's <laughs> makes sense. I care. I mean, that was for me very much. Like I, I cared more about your success than other people's. And I was like, gosh, like I want you to care more about your success than you care about other people's success. Um, knowing that you had given so much of your time to the club and to other boxers. And we can talk about that a little bit more later, but that was something where I was just like, gosh, like this would be so much easier if Joey was just, a little bit less kind. I still put in my work, I would say. Yeah, well, yeah. Spent many hours in the pit, so. Yes, but it was always, for you, it was always about quality over quantity of time and uh, and maximizing your your time. Um, and I think that's actually what prompted the discussions. I was upset because I we were in the, the gym at the same time and I was hoping that we were going to be able to work and then it didn't work out. Uh, I had to go. You had been selflessly giving your time to another boxer. And I, I was frustrated that we didn't get to work that day. And um, um, yeah, no fortune. Fortunately, it, it all had a had a good ending. And you were able to cap things off with a spirited win over former podcast guest and a future champ, Johnny Link. Future Larry Ashford winner, too. That That is true. That is okay. true. The 2020 Larry Ash Award winner. What was going through your mind after your hand was raised, you're the champion in your weight class, and then you're exiting the ring for the last time? I don't know if you like this answer. <laughs> I, I got to hurry because Danny's up next. <laughs> I knew it. I, I knew that was going to be the answer. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit more about what was, what, so what was transpiring and why your mentality was I need to rush back? Uh, so I worked with Danny for two years and he lived in my section freshman year, uh, moved off campus his senior year. We've always stayed pretty close. I still keep in touch with him. Awesome person and really was a big positive influence on me in terms of like he approached me for help while he was in the club and like he didn't have to do that. There were definitely more qualified people in the club to go see, but he, he trusted me with all of that. So his success was something I cared very much about. But since we're very close in weight, he was the next weight class up from me. So when I was done with my bout, as soon as I walked out, he was walking up. And thank you for <laughs> taking over <laughs> about two rounds before, <laughs> before I can get back out there. But yeah, it was because uh, yeah, you had to go back, get cleared by the doctor. And so I was there for the first round, went into the ring for the first round. And then I think midway through the second round, you were able to get back and take over. It was one of the quickest turnarounds, I think, post-championship out. You, uh, you must have breezed through the cognitive assessment that the doctors put you through. I remember being very rushed in <laughs> in in that part of the the process yeah i, I you know, feeling 
I totally expected that was going to be the answer. It's good to have that confirmation that even the signature moment of your Bengal Bats boxing career, your immediate thought is not, I did it. This is so cool. It's, I've got to, I've got to get away from being the center of attention as quickly as possible and return to, to help someone else out. Um, no, I, I think that's a, that's a great testament to the friendship the two of you formed and your commitment to, um, being there for your fellow boxers. The previous year, he was one of the, that kind of group that kind of lost in the semifinals, but Aaron Bodie and Jack Ryan both graduated that year. And so like we were the, the two moving up together and just, we got it. <laughs> yeah. And, and also very close to almost facing each other in the tournament. You were, your weigh-ins yeah. were very, very close and it, uh, pound here or there could have, uh, could have looked a little bit different. Um, yeah, that would have been, that would have been tough, uh, an unprecedented situation where you would have been requesting to corner for your opponent. <laughs> well, that uh, tends to happen at that weight class. <laughs> Since I was Johnny's corner one in the, in the prelims and then couldn't for the rest of the, the tournament. That, yeah, that is, that is, that is true. Uh, and, and only fitting for you. Um, so this is a little bit different, but you once shared with me that a previous martial arts instructor of yours told you that if you aren't prepared to be cut in a knife fight, you aren't prepared for a knife fight. I'd love to hear how that mentality shaped your boxing experience. Yeah, so uh, this martial arts instructor is someone that I've known probably the longest in my life that I like keep in touch with. I started classes with them when I was four. It was more of a martial arts and self-defense minded studio. So he would occasionally host like different seminars and like self-defense tactics and techniques. And one of them was knife defense. And I mean, very obvious thing for like, if you're going to get into a knife fight and you're not prepared to be cut, like then obviously you don't, <laughs> you're not ready to be in it. Like if you're thrown into that situation, you have to be prepared to, like if you're not prepared to get like a, a few nicks and scrapes, then you're probably more likely to get cut pretty badly. So applying that to boxing, like when you see people's first spars, almost all of them throw their hands out and shy away and throw their head away because they're not prepared to be hit. But then you see after that first time they get hit in the face, they're like, oh, this is how it works. <laughs> now we can start going. So once I feel like once that mental shift really takes place, you have that like tactile experiential learning that you can't really mentally prepare for because it has to happen to you physically. And you went and also shared that after passing along this piece of advice, you weren't cut by a knife, but something else was, <laughs> something else happened. Um, okay. <laughs> what, what was that, Joey? So that sort of experiential learning, uh, I still remember that. It, so we went through the whole class learning about knife defense, like practicing through the drills and like what is proper form uh, for blocking and then like releasing grips and getting away. But like <laughs> brought out a very low voltage taser that <laughs> pretty much functionally simulates a knife, but like all of that went out the window. I volunteered for it and then all of the self-defense that I learned went out the window. And then that's when kind of brought it home and 
gave the spiel I gave earlier. And that's when things kind of click a little bit more. If you're prepared to get zapped a little bit in that situation, you're more than likely going to be able to get away. <laughs> if you're solely focused on avoiding the tasion, you're not focused on getting away or other objectives that you have. And I recall you're sharing this story with me via email. It was in anticipation of your senior year when you mentioned how he provided this lesson to the class. And then the next sentence was, and then I was tased. And then I still remember <laughs> the end of the email. You were saying, I know I can fight sleepy. I can fight tired. I'm willing to be tased. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember having this moment of, okay, I think, I think Joey's ready, ready for this season. And don't get me wrong. My martial arts instructor is one of my favorite people in the world. He is awesome and stand by him 1000% in anything he does. <laughs> Uh, well, clearly it's been a, a meaningful lesson for you and one that, uh, um, as you put it in that last response, that uh, sometimes by focusing so much on thing that we don't want to have happen, it can increase the chances that it does happen. But instead, yeah. if we stay calm and focus on implementing what we were taught, uh, our chances of success are a bit higher. Yeah, like a self-fulfilling prophecy or what you resist persists kind of mentality. So we're going to transition to one of your favorite segments of the podcast episode, the hot seat. And so I've got some questions lined up for you and uh, we will see how quickly we can get through these. And we will begin with favorite flavor of ice cream. It depends on the day. Um, I would I'll pivot to the most underrated one is probably Ben and Jerry's milk and cookies. More people need to eat that one. Favorite tradition of your undergrad dorm, Keo Hall? Uh, the chariot race. It's an incredible time. And we'll say black raspberry chocolate chip from Graders <laughs> is probably my favorite ice cream. By and large, like any day. Okay. Toughest thing about being a teacher? Ooh. <laughs> hmm. Oh, wow. Putting lesson plans online. <laughs> Fair, I guess. <laughs> Favorite dining hall meal? Oh, not this year. My go-to is usually like I make a chicken sandwich and then put my own toppings on it. Who won the most recent WNBA championship? The Mystic. Washington Mystic. Fictional character in a book you'd most like to be friends with? Ooh. Um, Jamie Fraser, Outlander. And final question. How many short stack pancakes could you eat in one sitting? One sitting. Let's, I think I can, let's say 16. I think I'm, I'm pretty confident on 16. Wow. All right, Joe, you're sitting. off the hot seat. Like, I don't need to get up. <laughs> I think I, that, I think that's fair. I think in terms of mass, I can get 16. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if only I could see uh, the, the mental calculations that were going on as you were trying to arrive at that answer. I have a feeling that 16 is probably a pretty darn accurate assessment from you. Well, that was going to be one of the punishments for my college friends fantasy football league last year before COVID hit. But then, so like... Just mentally preparing for those is 
a good time. It was the, the IHOP challenge. Like you stay in an IHOP for 24 hours, but you knock out an hour for every pancake you eat. Yes, I remember hearing all about this. So if the sitting is eight hours, I can get 16 done. Okay. <laughs> to an hour. <laughs> uh, we touched on this a bit earlier, but you very much have a servant's heart. And I think that's been exemplified in a variety of ways. One of them was you're going to Bangladesh before your junior year for the ISSLP. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience in Bangladesh and, and how that shaped you and transformed your relationship with the club. So once everything stopped being theoretical, it kind of improves your focus a little bit on what you want to do. And I think that by the end of that trip, all of us decided that the more people we can get participating in the tournament, get that $500 minimum requirement. That's how we do our best to give back to people that have given us so much, like going into the, the trip in general is just like, oh, we're going to help out. We're going to teach English. We're going to, we're, we were awful teachers. <laughs> we didn't speak the native language, but like, I mean, learning more about teaching now, it's like more than half of it is showing up every day, caring for them. And I remember that one of the things I severely disagreed with one of the uh, pastors on was when they cancel summer classes and his reasoning was you can lead a horse to water but you can't make a drink i thought you definitely can but then becoming a teacher you definitely can't you <laughs> definitely cannot you can lead them to water as much as you can and that's that's the job but they they kind of choose their learning on that so that was more on the teaching side but i guess on the mission side of it like learning names of the people that were there is like that changes your world view a little bit because it's no longer like throwing your money out there. It's I'm giving to Ruth. I'm giving to Lessie. I'm giving to all the Holy Cross priests that are over there that are doing such good work with the minority population in like the, the tribal populations in Bangladesh that they make up like if it's going to be a, a fair distribution in any sort of like representative government they're not going to get much representation because they're not a big percentage of the population. So what they do is they like provide good education. So that way, like that's their vehicle into a more prosperous life for them and their, their children. You are also quite the servant for the women's program. One thing that's come up a couple of times in the podcast episodes is this really strong relationship that's developed between the men's and women's programs. And you threw yourself wholeheartedly into working with the women's program during their season. Some people joked that you were one of the Brockabout's captains, that you were there cornering more than some of the other captains. Some of the women's captains, you were just this omnipresent figure. Um, I'd love to hear about how that particular involvement with sort of Notre Dame boxing, and it became even more than just Bengal bouts, but it was Notre Dame boxing and what it was like working with the women during that season. And if there are any particularly fond memories that strike you. Yeah. So after being named a captain that spring of, or the spring before my junior year, I said it before and having this sort of proven mentality of like, I didn't feel like I was like the person for the job. So I guess at that point I had to choose, like 
I can either stay in that space of thinking I'm not the person for the job and continue to be a captain that didn't feel worthy of being there, or I could step up and actually like make sure that they didn't make a bad decision on that. Uh, Cause there were other like champions even that like weren't named junior captains, but I mean, they, they chose me for it. So I wanted to make sure that I was exceeding their expectations of what they thought I could, could bring. Um, so in that, like all I could do is give my time. Like during the women's season, if they're cornering during practice time, then they're not working on themselves. Then they're not up there doing the workouts. So why wouldn't I be there cornering? My, my season isn't gonna start for a little bit. Practices in the pits start after they leave. So, and I mean, I've learned a ton as well. I don't wanna make it seem like I'm not gaining anything from that either. Like if you're giving to, like how could I not benefit from it as well? Because it's kind of like giving to a charity that I'm also part of, you know? So like the better that I can give myself, the more boxing acumen everyone's gonna have so that when they're cornering for us, they can defend more things to say or like, and I'm also like in mitt work or any sort of advice that I give, I'm drawing upon so many other people's knowledge as well. Like you, uh, Mr. Frack, uh, who's my martial arts instructor, like everything I hear, like watching fights on TV, things like that. It's everyone's lifting each other up. So I wouldn't say as much as like I'm giving all of myself because like I'm gaining so much from, from everyone too. Yeah. Well, you were truly, you were everywhere and anywhere <laughs> during that season. Um, and, uh, it was clear just how much it meant to the captains that you were giving so generously of your time and, uh, inserting yourself in, in investing yourself in their boxing journeys. And I think that was reflected in the number of times that Barack about boxers asked you to corner for them, which to that, they're incredible people. So (laughs) they're just awesome people just to know, like not in a boxing context, but to see that how much they get out of it. Like why wouldn't I put so much time into it? Like the dividends, like if you're talking about like return on investment, like of course that's absolutely there. On the topic of being named a captain, one thing I realized was that when you were named a captain going into junior year, so too were you having that experience with a close friend of yours who was being named a junior captain, Pat Gordon. You and Pat started boxing together freshman year, both in the program, both in Keough Hall, both became RAs in Keough Hall, both two-time captains. What was that like that... that, um, that friendship, I guess, and, and being able to do that with someone who is in such close proximity to you and you kind of running in these at first parallel paths, but then ones that became so closely connected where I think a lot of times boxers associated like, oh yeah, Pat and, Pat and Joey. What, what was that experience like being able to go through that with a good friend? It would be completely different if you weren't there. So it's because having someone to like, forgive the pun, but we don't pull punches with each other. We but we trust each other enough to kind of say it as it is. And we talk shop a ton. I've learned a ton from Pat. He's extremely, has extremely high boxing IQ. So it's, I don't know, we spent 
a ton of time together over the past like sophomore junior senior year we act so i didn't know him until sophomore year uh, i was living in 2b he was in 3a uh, in keo and like i would hear about this other boxer in the dorm named pat but also not named pat and like it would just be like oh yeah this other person boxes but we didn't have classes together or anything like that then sophomore year i moved up to 3a and then got to know that whole group and still keep in touch with them to this day. They're awesome. Just to clarify, when you say that other boxer named Pat, but not named Pat, what do you mean by that? His name's not Pat. <laughs> His name's Thomas. <laughs> uh, Thomas Patrick Gordon the fourth. Uh, yeah. um, so final question, and, and one that I think a lot of current boxers might be really interested in in light of all of the research that you have done about training and sports performance if you take everything that you've learned how would you go back and adapt your bengal bouch training if you were able to do it all over again i think it's very easy to have the idea that you can separate the physical and mental side of things or like compartmentalize them into different spheres but I think the higher level you get, the more they overlap and the more you're able to allow those things to coexist and not really interfere with each other, the, the better results you'll get. I say this because I am a huge victim of the paralysis by analysis phenomenon where when you're thinking about things too often, you can't react in time. And it's an interesting. Con so one of the books that I've read since then, uh, it's called The Inner Game of Tennis. And it's about tennis, but also not about tennis. It uses like tennis as a vehicle to talk about different sports performance tips. And one of them is the idea of non-judgmental feedback and allowing your very automatic reflexive systems of the body kind of take over. The one, the thing that you're developing the like supercomputer part of your brain that's working in all of the hours that you're training and all of the mitt work and all of the specific performance exercises that you're doing, allow that to shine instead of the kind of ego driven mental side of it where, and I can cite it on myself quite a bit, even in making incorrect decisions, the idea of making the choice for the incorrect decision seems more appealing than falling backwards into what would be objectively a better decision because you feel like you're not a part of it. Like it's when people are like in the zone, when they feel like they're shooting out of their mind in like basketball or something where they don't even feel like they're, they have a hand in what they're doing, but in reality, they don't feel like it, but they are, they are physically the person doing it. So I think trying to make moves to be less ego driven in my own boxing would probably be the way I would try to, but also the experiences that you have of it are, they lead to that conclusion. So I don't know if I'd change anything, but if I were to coach other people to it, I would probably be more affirming, like less corrective, more like directive. Mm. One of my favorite quotes from that book is, uh, a rose is a rose from the time it's a seed to the time it dies. And at all times it is a rose and it contains its whole potential, but it seems to be constantly in the process of change, but at each state of its life, 
it is perfectly all right as it is. And I think I really like that because it's saying even if you're not like where you feel like you should be, you're still perfectly fine where you are because that is where you are and you're valuable as a person. I'm pretty sure that Pete Carroll is a big uh, advocate of that book, The Inner Game of Tennis. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure I've heard that before. Um, I was really hoping that the one thing you would go back and do differently is get more than three hours of sleep. But Oh, it's probably that as well. <laughs> probably far more too. Uh, um, yeah, you were notorious for your the, the hours that you would keep uh, were not necessarily conducive to optimal athletic performance, but which makes your accomplishments all the more impressive. It, but I don't want to make it seem like if other people are listening to this and they don't sleep, go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> There's much just because it's been done doesn't mean it's the best way to do it concur go to sleep it, it catches up with you uh, honestly um so you know the podcast well enough to know that we always conclude with the final round uh two shout outs to individuals or, or groups of people who were important parts of your bengal bouch journey yeah uh first one is definitely mr frack uh we've referenced him a few times today and every winter break i would go back and work with him, just learning a ton of like the physical and mental side of it and just like staying busy during winter breaks. But also like every time I'm home, I make it a point to see him because he's apart from my parents, probably the most influential person in my life. That's really cool. And the second one, surprise, surprise, it's you. <laughs> you've been to every one of my, you've been in my corner every step of the way. And probably the most of my Notre Dame experience, you and many Gelchins have <laughs> been the most influential on me. It had a hand in such positive change through my life. And I mean, I've, I've told other people this. It's <laughs> I'm forever grateful for being able to have you in my life. Well, that means the world to me, Joey, and feeling is absolutely mutual uh i still remember your freshman year where i questioned whether you had made a vow of silence um, i don't know that i heard you speak much more than a word or two um, apart from asking uh if i could hold mitts and then to see the the ways in which you threw yourself onto the program the way in which you occupied such a critical leadership position uh, the way you grew throughout those four years in the club and then certainly on campus, throwing yourself into not just Bengal bouts, not just Barack bouts, not just ND Vision, not just Keogh Hall, just kind of finding more and more things to throw yourself into wholeheartedly was, uh, I think, a real a great example of how people can make the most of their time at Notre Dame. Um, so the feeling's absolutely mutual, buddy. We have reached the end of another episode. Thanks so much for making time. Joey, thanks so much for carving out time to, to chat today. It's it's always a pleasure and really grateful for your share and your Bengal Bouts experience with our audience. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me to be on this. I'm a big fan of it, so it's it's weird being on the other side. <laughs> 
Yeah, we'll see if I get the text after the episode with some feedback from you this time uh, on your own episode. I, um, this is probably the one episode I won't watch. <laughs> and, by, and by watch, I presume you mean listen. Yes, listen on. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Joey. Thanks, everyone listening. Until next time, have a great day. He is the boxer. He knows no peaceful sleep too.